Sirius XM and Augusta National present The Masters Show. And he puts out for a 68. Ben's best round of the four-day tournament. Hogan wins his first Masters. There's your champion, Fuzzy Zeller, 1979 Masters champion. There it is, as grand as it gets. Tiger has his slam. Masters history, conversations with past champions, previewing this year's tournament and celebrating the unique traditions of the Masters. Bernard, when we put this jacket on you, you become a member of Augusta National Golf Club. You're invited to play in this tournament for the rest of your life. Okay. Very proud of that. The Masters Show with your host, Taylor Zarzer, begins right now on Sirius XM. The start of the 2021 Masters. Seven weeks from now, we will be in Masters Week here on Sirius XM. Happy President's Day here to you on this Monday night, February the 15th, 2021. I am Taylor Zarzer and glad to be with you till the top of the hour. Gabe Ortiz, John Albanese, Christy Ujic producing tonight. We have Brian Katrick, the voice of the Masters, that will join us coming up in just a few minutes. And then after that, we have Caitlin Papp, who's playing once again in the Augusta National Women's Amateur, which will happen at the beginning of April, concluding at Augusta National Golf Club. But our first guest tonight is a Masters champion. He is the only Augusta native to ever win the event. He'll be making his 38th career start in the 2021 Masters. He is a great member of the SiriusXM family. He is Larry Mize. Larry, how are you tonight? Hey, Taylor, great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Have you caught any fish since the last time we talked? If what now? Have you caught any more fish in the last week? Oh, uh, we, I, we, well, we, no, just since last Monday. No, that was it. I hadn't been, the weather hadn't been good enough. I wish it was. So, you know, kind of big bass months, this one and next month. So we're trying to, trying to see what we can do, but, uh, nothing since last time we talked. <laughs> I'm super jealous, my friend. Uh, I love that you're, I love you're doing that and getting a little downtime before you play a little bit more on the PGA Tour champions before you, you start again at the Masters. Larry, I, I know you've done this so many times with me and, and with our audience, but if you would indulge us once more, when you were a little boy, you worked the scoreboard on the third hole. How old were you, Larry, when you started that? How did that happen? Um, I was 13. Uh, what I remember is you had to be a teenager to, uh, to, be, to do it, so I had to wait till I was 13. And I think my dad had something to do with it. I think he knew somebody that was able to make sure I got a job out there. So I kind of thank my dad. And uh, so I worked out there for two years until we moved to, uh, from Augusta to Columbus. I worked out there in uh, the uh, two masters when I was 13 and 14. And uh, I just had a, I had a great time, you know, to get to go out there and work was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I just said, obviously I always love going out there to watch all the players play. And most importantly, I love to watch it sit on the range and watch them practice hit ball, see what I could learn. But it was uh, it was just a great, fun time, great memories. And uh, every time I go by that third hole, I look at that scoreboard with, uh, with with fond memories. And make sure the person's doing their job, right? Because you can train them. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. It was interesting. I think it was uh, in uh, 73, the year Tommy Aaron won, uh, We were, Sunday got rained out, I believe, and uh, – I don't know why they left me and so young in charge, but I, like I was the only one there with a the headphone sitting there in the rain until they finally called it. But uh, 
it was uh, it was always fun to go up the ladder and put the numbers up, and then we pull the pull the little thing back where you put the numbers and peek through it to see what was going on on the green, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It's just amazing that you're able to do that. Jack won in '72, Tommy Aaron won in '73, so you got a couple of uh, great experiences there. Now, of course, you would play in the event for the first time in, in 1984. Did you make any trips back between the time you left Augusta and moved to Columbus to the time you competed in the Masters? Um, I did. You know, it was always a dream of mine to play in the Masters, and, and so I kind of – I guess I could have played a little sooner, uh, but I really didn't want to. But I did. I got a chance. I believe it was 1980. It was when they were switching the greens from Bermuda to Bent. I got a chance to play, and I did play even though it wasn't – you know, they had like eight temporary greens. I mean, I remember the 10th hole, the temporary green was down in the valley, short of the green. And so I got to play it, but it just wasn't quite the same. But after I won Memphis in, uh, in 83, I did go over there in March of 84 and played a practice round before the tournament of 84. And that was the first time I got to play all 18 holes, normal greens and everything. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, well, the whole the whole experience was kind of surreal to get to go there and play after watching it so much growing up. It was, uh, it was, it was great. You played great too, tied for 11th that year. And in fact, the first three times you, you played in the masters, you made the cut all three years, you finished in the top 16, two of those uh, three years. And by the time 1987 rolled around, Larry, you're 28 years old. You mentioned the win in Memphis in 83, you'd played in 13 majors. What was the state of your game coming into the 1987 Masters? You know, my game was in good shape. I, uh, I'd played the, I took the week off prior to the Masters, but, but prior to that week off, I played in the Players' Championship and, you know, finished, I think I finished 13th, had a nice solid week, played, played solid. So I came into Augusta. My game was in good shape and, you know, I had, I had good memories from finishing it off in 86 with a with 65 on Sunday which is still the lowest round of a shot there, which kind of got me in the top 24 that guaranteed me coming back. And so my game was in good shape, and I had a, real, a lot of good feelings coming back after finishing off the tournament the previous year so well. Were you thinking about winning? Is that something you do uh, before a tournament starts, or is that something you think about once you, you really have a shot come Sunday? Well, you, you know, you're always, you're always going there to win the golf tournament. But, you know, when you tee it up, you're not thinking about winning that first day. You're thinking about things you have to do to get in a position to win. So, you know, I just wanted to go out there and play good, solid golf. You know, if you start, if you're thinking about winning, have that on your mind, uh, the first round, uh, I don't think you're going to do very well. I mean, you're there to win, you know that, but you've got to be focused on your game at hand and not on winning that first, actually the first three rounds. Actually, you don't start thinking too much about winning until after the third round, see what kind of position you're in and, and give yourself a chance. So, um, obviously, uh, that was that was my thought thought process then. In in recent years, Larry, we think of one of the hardest Masters being the time Zach Johnson won just over a, a dozen years ago. I know he's become a, a great friend of yours, and and you guys had had similar games. What was the 1987 Masters like? Three under par ended up in a playoff. Just how difficult was it, and why was it so difficult? Yeah, it was, and just the. Tiki tell you, you're right. Zach is a great guy and a great player. And uh, but '87 uh, was very difficult. Um, they had the course set up very hard and fast, which was was good for me because I was just an average hitter. I was not a long hitter, so uh, 
the ball was running in the fairways and the greens were very hard and it made it play very tough. So, you know, it, it, you know, brought the short game more into play probably, I believe. And so that kind of was one of my strong points as well. So uh, it was playing very difficult. I mean, uh, and that's why the scores, it is, it is hard to believe only we were all three under in the playoff, but that just tells you how hard it was. You know, it was breezy some, I think, uh, I can't remember exactly, but I know some of the days the breeze was blowing, and when the wind blows at Augusta, it makes it play really hard because it just swirls in those pine trees, and it can be coming from different directions. And, uh, you know, you hit a golf shot, and it swirls in another different direction, blows your ball offline, obviously not where you're trying to go. So uh, it were very difficult conditions, but the biggest part was the firmness of the greens were just rock hard. I still remember John Cook and I played together the first two days because – after the first day, he was leading, and I was in second, and they repaired back then after every round. And we're standing there on the fourth tee waiting for the group in front of us, and they're hand-watering the third green. And they're, you know, with the, like a thing you'd water flowers with. And uh, it's, like the, it's like the water off your car just after you've waxed it. It was just beaded up on the greens, just kind of rolling off the green. So I'm sure some of it was seeping in, but most of it was just kind of rolling off because it was uh, water was even having a hard time getting in those greens that day. Wow, can you imagine if they did that today? Uh, how about that? 34 years ago, water in the greens uh, just to try to slow them down a, a little bit. The leaderboard on Sunday was just magnificent. Norman, Ballesteros, Crenshaw, Maltby, Langer, Strange. You were right there. At one point, you were four back before you made a, a couple birdies on six and seven and then made a couple more on, on 12 and 13. But, Larry, you made bogey on the par 5 15th. Did you think you, you'd lost your shot when you made bogey there? No, I, I didn't. I mean, I, I remember making the bogey there and looked up at the scoreboard and saw that, you know, I was still right there. You know, I think I was just one shot back at the time, I believe one or two. So I thought, okay, let's, let's birdie the last three. I mean, obviously the bogey was very disappointing. You know, I flew the green and landed on the down slope and went in the pond on third, on 16, and, uh, which is not where you want to go. But, uh, no, I was. Uh, I still. I still thought I had a chance, and I still just said, you know, that's all right. Forget it. Keep going and uh, try and make some birdies coming in. Everybody talks about the the shot, one of the most famous shots in major championship history. But I want to talk about something that does not get enough attention, and I think that's the birdie you made on eighteen, which really at the time everybody felt you had to make, and I'm sure you felt you had to make. Tell us how you did it. Well, I mean, you're right. That's that that hole and that that birdie on that hole is very special to me to do that when I needed to. And uh, I was playing with Curtis Strange, and Curtis was first off the tee on 18, and he had a three-wood out there just perfect. And uh, obviously, it's not, tee was about 60 yards forward from where it is now. Um, and I had driver out, and my caddy, Scott Steele, and I said, hey, let's just hit three-wood, because Curtis and I were hitting at similar distance. So I hit a three-wood off the tee right next to the bunker and had about 140 yards up the hill into the green, and, you know, you got the nerves going, the adrenaline's pumping, and you don't, you really don't want to hit anything, try to hit a soft shot in there. So we hit a hard nine iron and, uh, you know, hit it really good and uh, hit on the green and kind of firmness of the greens. It rolled up the slope, but thank goodness it didn't get all the way to the top, and it rolled back down to about, uh, you know, five or six feet. So I had a really, you know, good chance to make birdie there. And, uh, you know, shaking in my boots, I was able to get that in the hole, and that was, it was very exciting for me to birdie that last hole. It was very special. What a putt uh, to get into the playoff with it, it. I think, Larry, looking back and really trying to to do some research here, you got into a playoff with the two best players in the planet, Greg Norman and Seve Ballesteros, which is the equivalent of Dustin Johnson, John Rahm, really, in this day and age. Did 
did you allow yourself to think about that as you're on the 10th tee, or did you try everything you could to not think about that? No, you know, you, you, you'd better not think about that. Um, you know, the previous year in 86, Greg and I, Norman and I, had been in a playoff at Kemper that went six holes. I, I kind of thought I had him on the first playoff hole, but he made a great putt for par. And five holes later on the sixth hole, he, uh, he beat me. So it wasn't my first time in a playoff and not my first time in a playoff with Greg. And, you know, my confidence was high. I played really well. Coming off the birdie at 18 gave me a lot of confidence. And uh, I knew both those players have the utmost respect for their games. Um, but, you know, I was, I was loving it, and I, I, was, I was out there to try and win the playoff. You can't be thinking about your other players or anything else other than the fact that go play your game and uh, try and win the golf tournament. There you go. And Seve would bow out after the first hole and, and walked on back to the to the clubhouse after the 10th. And like you said, Norman and you would go to the 11th, and, and many were thinking about that Kemper playoff the year before. So a- after you hit the second shot, which is the place to, to bail out, um, given just how difficult of a challenging of a second shot that is, is you, walk us through the greatest shot of your life, from, from walking down to it to the time you made it. Well, my, my caddy, Scott Steele, did a great job all week, and he was telling me, you know, no biggie like he did before. It's, that's okay. We're all right. Cause I was disgusted with my shot. Um, so he was calming me down and doing a great job. And as I walked down there, you know, I'm just trying to focus on, you know, what I need to do there. And once I got to the shot, I looked over it and saw there's no way I can land this ball on the green and keep it out of the water. You know, because the, the, once it gets – you know, almost the entire green, but definitely once it gets to just before halfway, it's downhill all the way to the to the to the uh, hole, and the greens were so hard, and all I carried was a 56 degree sandwich back then. I said, "There's no way I can land it on." So, the great thing about the shot was there was only one shot I could play. There was no indecision. I had to play a pitch and run, landing it short of the green, and have it uh, bounce on and run to the hole like a putt. And you practice this shot at Augusta because you've got the sticky ryegrass around the greens, and a lot of times you can't get under it enough to hit, hit a little high shot, so you practice this shot. But that was the greatest thing was the fact that there was no indecision, which is the worst thing a golfer can be is be indecisive. I was totally committed to the shot. I picked out a spot where I wanted to hit it and you know, just said, give it a good shot because you have to put it around the hole. That's the other aspect about this shot was it's a playoff. It's do or die. I can't make bogey and go to the next hole i've got to put it close and put pressure back on greg so i said hit a good aggressive shot and put it around the hole and uh let's see what happens and thank goodness i hit the right speed the right line and it went in the hole and then i went running around screaming like a madman (laughs) (laughs) and if steve milnick if you're listening somewhere in sea island you're saying it again i'm sure words don't do great do justice to the greatness of that shot um you've never tried it again right no, they, they wanted me to go back and recreate it, but, you know, you can't recreate it. I mean, it, it's, it's all in the moment. And I got to thinking that, uh, and I probably got some good advice on this, too, from someone, some, some, uh, you know, it's just not going to, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lose-lose situation. And I wanted to, it's one of the best decisions I made because I have a fond memory of the shot. There is no going back doing it every time I see that shot on TV or think about that shot I last time I hit it I made it I knocked it in so there's no <laughs> you know going well yeah I went back there and I hit it short or I left it 20 feet short or I hit it in the water uh, it keeps it a pure memory which has been uh, really good for me I've really enjoyed having that memory pure one for one I love it um where is the wedge 
Uh, the wedge is uh, in, in the there in the the grill at Augusta National. They're they're very nice about that. You you I got a letter after the tournament saying we'd love to have a club that was instrumental in your win, and we understand clubs are special, so we can wait uh, until whenever. And the interesting thing is. It was my backup. I used a, a Jack Nicholas Muirfield uh, McGregor wedge, and my grooves were getting low. And I uh, I put it put my backup in brand new wedge that week of Augusta. So it was the first week I used it, and uh, I used it uh, you know for about, about a year and a half. And I've, I've I've learned I need to change my wedges a little more often now. But uh, I used it for about a year and a half, and then I sent it to them, and it's uh, displayed in the grill with all the other champions clubs. That's just great, and it is. It's just it's it's there, and it's it's so special for everyone to see that comes through there. You know, I I have so enjoyed seeing you there at Augusta National through the years, high fiving you after some made cuts, and in recent years as you're about ready to tee it up for the thirty eighth time. I, I was trying to put this in comparison. If if somebody from Green Bay, Wisconsin, were to win the Super Bowl for the Packers, you know, or or if somebody from Boston was to win the World Series at, at Fenway Park, it, that, maybe that would compare. You are in a category that I don't think anybody can relate to, being from Augusta and winning the Masters. Is that something that hits you hard immediately, or as time has gone on, it's just become more and more special? You know, I, I don't think of it other than the fact that, you know, it was just – such a special week i mean it was a dream of mine to play in the masters and then to win it kind of goes into unbelievable really unbelievable and uh i don't think about how it compares to anything else i'll I'll leave that to everybody else but it's just uh it is amazing that uh it turned out where uh, i was able to do that and uh it's just a tremendous highlight in my golfing career that little kid changing the board on the third hole put a green jacket on 14 years later. It's just absolutely remarkable. And the thing I love most about you, Larry, is the way you represent Augusta National Golf Club, the exclusive fraternity of those that put that green jacket on, and the way you, brought, you represent your family, your faith, and the game of golf. Thank you for doing this. I can't wait to see you in a few weeks, my friend. Well, it's my pleasure, and it's just, you know, Augusta National, the Masters, is such a special place. To be associated in any way with that place is very special to me. And, uh, you know, one one last thing that just made the week even continued to make it so special was Nicholas was my favorite golfer growing up. And sure enough, who won in 86 and put the jacket on me but Jack Nicholas. And to have Jack put the jacket on me was, was very, very special. Um, I couldn't have had a, another player uh, put it on that would have been as special as that so that was very special and you're very kind you know my faith is the most important thing to me and uh i've always enjoyed being with you taylor and i mean and t- yep and the, tonight was no tonight was no exception yep you're a great friend larry thank you so much best to your bride go catch some of those bass we'll, we'll see you in a couple months you got it taylor take care larry mize the 1987 champion still so moved by that victory in 1987 who put the jacket on him and just what it means so many years later And you can bet he'll have a chance to make the cut again in 2021. He is so good there. Coming up next, Brian Catrix is going to tell us about the entire field, Mize included, on the Masters Show. This is Sirius XM. The Masters Show on Sirius XM. Nicholas, this is for sole possession of the lead. 
famous calls ever in Masters history by Vern Lundquist on the 17th green at the 1986 Masters. The year before Larry Mize had Jack Nicklaus put the green jacket on him. I'm Taylor Zarzer. Brian Katrick is the announcer on this show. He is the voice of the Masters. Speaking of voice, he doesn't have much of one tonight because he was at the Daytona 500 cheering for Michael McDowell. That's his driver who ultimately won. Congratulations to Henry and Brian Katrick for getting to see that in person. First and foremost, man, what a memory. It's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. And there are a couple of ties to the Masters. All right, here we go. So I was lucky enough to have my son with me when Tiger won in 2019. And that's the greatest live sporting event I've ever witnessed. And it was just fantastic. And there's a lot of folks that feel that same way. Our ties to the front row motorsports team who won the Daytona 500 last night actually run through Tiger as well, the Masters champion. Uh, one of their drivers a couple years ago who was super friendly to a very young version of my son was David Gilliland. David Gilliland played high school golf on the same high school golf team as Tiger Woods. And David's father, Butch, who was a professional race car driver, really didn't want David to join the sport. He would, would love to have, for him to have turned pro at something else, especially golf. But when, when Butch realized that David wasn't the greatest player on his high school team, he told his son, hey, look, if you're not the best player on your high school team, Forget it. You're not going to really be able to amount to much in the professional game. And unfortunately, <laughs> the best player on his high school team would go on to be, and was at the time, Tiger Woods. Uh, that's that's what got us to this team, wow. was just how, how down-to-earth cool. and friendly they were. And the car that David drove, the Love's... Uh, the Love-sponsored front-row motorsports Ford Mustang won the race last night. That is a cool memory and something that the two of you will cherish forever. So I'm so glad that you are able to be there and see it. Personally, I'm glad it was delayed, as it almost always is, so that I, I could watch Pebble Beach in exclusivity yesterday uh, afternoon and then watch Daytona last night. The field is still at 85, BK. Uh, no new entries into the field. Although uh, Maverick McNeely played so well and finished second. He was in position, it seemed, for a little while to maybe get there. Tom Hoagie had a chance. Nate Lashley certainly had a chance as he was tied for the lead with three holes to, to go before that untimely triple bogey. But the field is still at 85. And, again, that is assuming that all of the current Masters winners – will decide to play. Angel Cabrera and Trevor Immelman decided not to in November, so the most the field could be at is 85. I just have one question for you tonight, and that's this. Should we consider Daniel Berger in one of the top classes of those 85 players that can win a green jacket? I think we should, and one of the reasons why is he's got one of the most talented set of hands in the game, and I thought you just did a wonderful job speaking with the 87 champion uh, and Larry Mize. And that's a guy that was that was not your your typical player. You did a great job of profiling who he was up against in that playoff. And, and everybody was overlooking Larry Mize. And really, for a lot of his career, people were overlooking Larry Mize. Well, right now, Daniel Berger's playing in a, in a generation where he's being overlooked. But one of his great strengths, besides having a wonderful brain in between his ears... 
He's got a very talented set of hands. And, you know, so he may not hit it. You know, the book may not say that he hits it high enough to win at Augusta National. Perhaps his shot shape isn't exactly what you want uh, to win at Augusta National. And the statistics may say one thing. But as Larry just said, you got to play shots a little differently around that golf course in different times. And Daniel Berger has that ability to adjust. And he's got that winner's mentality. And now he's won twice, as uh, as you well know. So he was already in Category 16. He's back in Category 16. Uh, he's in there a second time. And, yeah, I think you have to put him on that short list. All right, I lied. I have one more thing I have to ask you. Because I was thinking about this yesterday. I know in the moment, as Jordan Spieth said, he was bummed that he didn't win because it was the second straight week. He had a 54-hole lead. I think as time goes on, he'll realize I'm really gaining on it, and somebody beat me. I didn't go out there and lose it. Some guy, Berger, went and shot 65. What I really took away from that is this guy is finding more and more confidence on the golf course, competing at the highest level in the final round of events. And if you could put Jordan Spieth one place, Brian, wouldn't you put him at Augusta National? Doesn't this serve the 2015 champion well for two months from now? Totally agree. And as long as you're not doing psychological damage by not winning, and I don't get the sense that that's the case for Jordan at all. I think he's quite happy to be playing his way into 54-hole leads, and he's not yet at the spot where he's going to get disappointed for not closing them out. Uh, and you know, can't imagine that if he keeps doing this, he won't have closed one or two out by the time we get to April. Uh, nonetheless, that guy is playing well enough and maybe the exact salve on the wounds that he needs. Uh, he, he said he's playing with his B game right now, and he realizes it. Well, maybe exactly what he needs to transform that into the A game uh, would be get to a place where you're comfortable, like Augusta National. I think that's a heck of a call. Well, if, um, if at Martinsville Speedway, Michael McDowell wins the Blue Emu Maximum Pain Relief 500 on Saturday, April the 10th. I'll be there at Augusta National ready to help you if you have no voice. Okay. The next day. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I will have to make sure to, to not watch that particular race. <laughs> I've never lost my voice screaming at a sporting event. Oh, I'm so glad you did. That's so cool. And of all things, to be screaming at a race car as well. They, they, he couldn't quite hear us. <laughs> However. <laughs> Just our, barely. Yeah. Yes, our hearts were in the right place. <laughs> yes, they were. That's what it's all about, though. Uh, father and son getting that, that kind of moment. BK, uh, rest the pipes. We'll talk to you next week. Taylor, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Coming up next, Caitlin Papp is going to join us. She's playing in the Augusta National Women's Amateur again. She played beautifully in the U.S. Women's Open back in December. We're going to talk about one of the premier events in the world in women's golf that concludes at Augusta National in early April on the Masters Show next on SiriusXM. Whether you're on or off the course, greatness takes more than skill. It takes dedication. That's why, as an international partner of the Masters, UPS is dedicated to driving innovation that powers your business. Growing your business means adapting to stay ahead. So UPS has tools beyond just shipping that meet the specific and ever-changing needs of business owners. If you're looking to take your business global, do it with help from UPS experts and international services made for business of all sizes. With UPS automated tracking tools, 
you can stay in control and save time by seeing everything all in one place. Plus, with faster ground shipping now offered nationwide, you can surpass customer expectations and outpace the competition. And if you've taken your business online, you can find UPS wherever you sell. Count on UPS to help your business grow so you can be bold, be brave, be unstoppable. We appreciate the partnership of UPS with Masters Radio and here on the Masters Show. Now back to the Masters Show on Sirius XM. And now here it is, the Matador. Two years in a tail, Sammy Ballesteros, the winner of the 44th Masters. Spaniard was one of the best ever to put on a, a green jacket in the Masters. He did it twice. This is the Masters Show. I'm Taylor Zarzer. Well, we're thrilled to be talking about the Augusta National Women's Amateur, which will be played the first few days of April, be played at Champions Retreat just down the road from Augusta National, and then will culminate with the final round on Saturday, April the 3rd, 2021, at Augusta National Golf Club. And joining us right now is one of the best amateur players in the world. She is Caitlin Papp of Austin, Texas. Caitlin, it's Taylor Zarzer. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you tonight? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm good. How about you? I'm terrific. I, I know you had a great finish there two years ago, finishing fifth. You would end up playing in the in the A&A Inspiration last year as there wasn't an Augusta National Women's Amateur. How much did you miss this event last year, Caitlin, after that incredible experience two years ago? Uh, I definitely missed the 2020 uh, ANWA a lot. Uh, the inaugural event in 2019 uh, was one event that I'll always remember forever just because it was the first time women have been able to compete at Augusta National and making the cut there was really special and finishing tied for fifth. Um, I was really excited to play so well and to be surrounded by uh, my family. It just really meant a lot to me. So I'm really excited to play this year in 2021. Regardless of gender, I think anybody that plays that golf course for the first time or the first couple of times is just so nervous and they're so overwhelmed because of what they've been watching in the Masters tournament for years. What was your experience like as you're competing with the best in the world playing on that golf course that means so much to everyone? I think uh, everyone there, including myself, we just had to just really embrace uh, being at Augusta National and uh, and we all just really soaked in the moment. Uh, playing there is, uh, is a true honor. And I think just being there and being a part of history at a club that has been so important to golf's history uh, was really meaningful. You know, I mentioned that you played in the A&A Inspiration last year, um, but you had an incredible finish at the U.S. Open in Houston. You were right there in the thick of it before finishing tied for ninth in December. Caitlin, how has your game changed since what happened two years ago at Augusta? Um, in the past couple of years, I've focused on adding distance, uh, especially off the tee to my golf game. I felt like it would be really beneficial just to get uh, some shorter clubs in my hands and then really just trying to like fine tune all aspects of my game, uh, get better at making scoring pads and being more consistent with my irons. I've just tried to sharpen up uh, every aspect of my game 
since the first Augusta National Women's Amateur. And, and I know that um, obviously after that great finish, that's got to give you some confidence. D- do you think that the fact that you've played in this event before will give you an advantage? Um, part of me thinks uh, there could be an advantage for returners in general, just because uh, we've all already played a champions retreat in Augusta. So we kind of know what to expect, but honestly, you still just have to go out there and try to do the best you can do. And, first things first is making the cut. Um, so I think like before the event, I'll know what to work on and uh, to be prepared. But ultimately, ultimately when I get there, I'll just have to play my game and see how it all shakes out. I know through the pandemic, uh, as all of us have been doing, we've been connecting virtually, uh, whether it's for work or it's for class, as you've been doing there at UT in Austin. Uh, what is your schedule like, Caitlin, before you get to Augusta? Um, right now we have a few college events, uh, before Augusta national. Um, I think we're in Houston next week and then we go to Tucson a couple of times after that. Um, so really it's just a pretty typical spring schedule. Um, you play a lot more than in the fall and I recently started grad school. So I, uh, my schedule's a little bit lighter this semester, so it's nice to have a lot of time to devote to golf. Congratulations on your undergraduate degree. I, I saw that. That's that's great to have in hand from such a <laughs> prestigious you. place in, in Austin. You're a two-time All-American. Um, what's the team like this year with the Longhorns? Uh, we have a great team this year. Um, uh, myself and Agat Linné from France, we're seniors on the team, and then uh, we have a lot of great juniors and sophomore and freshmen as well. So the team's pretty competitive, and we're all looking forward to the spring season. And you get to work on that great little short course you have there uh, at UT yeah. uh, to help your game, which I know will be helpful in uh, come April. Although I'm not sure you can do that today, can you? Is there's a I believe a lot of snow on the ground there in Austin. Yes, in Austin, uh, we got about six inches of snow last night, which is pretty unusual. This never happened. So, honestly, we haven't been able to go to the golf course since Wednesday because of ice and snow. And it looks like we'll have another few days of uh, rain, uh, sleet, and snow. So we're definitely looking forward to getting back out in the golf course, hopefully this weekend. Oh, my gosh. I bet you have cabin fever right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes i'm very eager just to get out and get to the golf course <laughs> it's a long you know, break you know caitlin as we wrap up a few years ago when chairman ridley made the announcement that they were going to bring this event to champions retreat and to augusta national all of us just thought man this is going to be as big of an event as women have in amateur golf i want to ask you simply what does this event mean to the women's game I think it means a lot that Augusta is hosting um, such a big uh, and world-class amateur women's golf event. Uh, I think it's really groundbreaking for women, and it's really something that all girls now are inspiring and uh, trying to motivate themselves to get get into at some point in their amateur career, just because the event or the golf course has so much history, and being a part of the event is really special, and it's 
really neat to share with your family and your friends. So this event is definitely one that will always um, be very sought after. I don't think there's any doubt. And and just as we as we let you go, uh, tell us a little bit of, a, a bit about how the practice schedule goes with preparing at Champions Retreat and then preparing at Augusta National. How that works? Uh, I think really it's just fine tuning all parts of your game uh, for both courses because uh, they truly test every part of your game. And so, so I think leading up, that's really important. And then as well as working on putting, <laughs> the Augusta Greens are pretty fast and slopey. So I think uh, putting is probably the most important part to work on. No question. Well, we can't wait to see you there in Augusta in a couple of months. Good luck to the Longhorns as uh, you, you try to take home a, a national championship, which is certainly realistic this season. Congratulations again on your degree, and uh, we'll see you very soon, Caitlin. Thank you so much. Have a great night. You do the same. Caitlin Papp joining us here on the Masters show on Sirius XM. She is truly one of the favorites to win the event this year, as we said, finished fifth two years ago and finished ninth at the U.S. Open in December at Champions Golf Club in Houston. By the way, that's Jack Burke's golf course where she finished ninth and had such a great chance. Of course, Jack, the oldest living winner of the Masters. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll tell you a little bit more about what's happening in the 2021 Masters. We'll share some favorite memories from the past and also give you some of our favorite traditions as we wrap up this edition of the Masters Show on Sirius XM. The Masters Show on Sirius XM. Arnold Palmer and Bill Lane, the chairman, congratulating Gary Player. And so for the third time in history, Gary Player is the Masters champion. I'm Taylor Zarzer, and we're so glad you're with us here on the Masters show. We'll talk about some of our favorite traditions and look back in Masters history in just a moment. So we told you there's 85 players that are currently eligible for the 2021 Masters. It'll be extended invitations. There is a 19th category that opens up and will be, that concludes on March the 28th, the last Sunday in March, which is 10 days before the tournament starts. That's when category 19 closes up, and that is the top 50 in the world as of that date. Of course, Category 18 is the top 50 in the world as of the end of the calendar year. So you have some movement within that three-month period. And there's a couple of players that have entered the top 50 that weren't in there at the end of 2020. Robert McIntyre from Scotland has moved to number 43 in the world. So if he can stay in there for the next six weeks, he'll be in the Masters for the first time ever. Will Zalatoris is number 49 in the official world golf rankings. Zalatoris would make his Masters debut if he can stay in there in the next six weeks as well. There are a few other guys that aren't qualified that are right outside the top 50, like Andy Sullivan, the Englishman, is number 55, and Kevin Streelman is number 56. Streelman's played in the Masters several times, and, man, has he come close to qualifying for this year's event in a variety of ways. He was 52nd at the end of the year 
He lost by a shot at the Travelers last year in Hartford to Dustin Johnson, and he finished 32nd in the tour standings. Strillman has another chance if he can get inside the top 50 to play once again in the 2021 Masters. Well, when you talk about traditions at Augusta National, one of the favorite traditions of mine are the Sunday hole locations that have become so synonymous. No matter how much golf or how little golf you watch, you know where a lot of the hole locations are going to be on Sunday, especially on the back nine. You think about the 11th hole, and you think about them putting it somewhere on the back, the very back of that green, traditionally on a Sunday. On the 12th hole, you know they're going to put it back right, and they're going to dare you to try to take on that flag and carry it all the way back to that hole location. If you don't, you find a watery grave like Francesco Molinari or Tony Finau or Brooks Kepka did two years ago, or Jordan Spieth did five years ago, or Tiger Woods did four times in the 2020 Masters, if you can believe that. We'll see if they put it back there again in April on that Sunday. And what will the wind do? The wind at the tee is always so different than what's happening there at the green. You scroll ahead, if you will. Typically, they put the Sunday hole location on the par 316th back left. They didn't do that for the 2020 Masters in November. They put it front right. We'll see if they put it back to putting it back left now that the Masters is returning to April. And then, of course, on Sunday, will it be front left, just above that bunker And will someone have a Sandy Lyle or Phil Mickelson-like putt to win a green jacket? That'll be fun to see. The traditional hole locations on Sunday is one of my favorite traditions at the Masters. Well, each week on the show, I look back at a Masters moment that I think is special. And I've been trying to look at what happened, say, 80 years ago or 75 years ago or 65 years ago, something that happened in the tens or fives um, between 2021 and the history of the masters dating back, of course, all the way back to the 1930s. But I've just really been moved by what was happening in the late forties, early fifties. And even though 1954 was 67 years ago, I've got to share it with you in case you're not aware of it. We had a mini Hogan Sneed like rivalry brewing with Tiger and Phil between 2004, 2005, and 2006. But consider what Ben Hogan and Sam Sneed were doing in the late 40s and in the 50s. Sneed won his first green jacket in 1949. Hogan was in the mix, too. In 1950, Jimmy Demerit won it. Hogan was right there, right after his uh, fatal, almost fatal, car crash he played in his his first major that year and then the next year in 51 hogan won his first of two masters titles in 52 sneed won battling strong winds and cold temperatures in 1953 hogan took the green coat back as he started one of the greatest seasons in golf history so now each of them in the last five years had two green jackets apiece. Demerit had the other, but the other two had two. 
And in 1954, Sam Snead and Ben Hogan played an 18-hole playoff on Monday to win the Masters. They had combined to win the previous three years, and Hogan came into Augusta having won the previous three majors he had entered. He carried a three-shot lead into the final round, but shot 75 to finish tied with Snead, who shot even par on Sunday. 31-year-old Billy Joe Patton, a world-class amateur player from where I'm sitting in North Carolina, had the lead going into the weekend, and at one point in the final round, after making a hole-in-one on the sixth hole, but he made a double bogey on seven, and on the 13th he made bogey, and on the and then another bogey on the 15th to miss the playoff by one. In the playoff, Sneed shot 70 to beat Hogan by one, who shot 71. It was slamming Sammy's seventh and final major victory, and it was celebrated as his most significant win. Think of that. I'm sure all of you have daydreamed, fantasized about going back in time and going to an incredible sporting event. On one hand, this broadcaster would pick the 1954 Masters out of every event I could go back to to watch that Monday playoff. Hogan and Sneed at the top of their game. Manu Imanu in a Monday playoff. One guy shoots 70 and the other shoots 71. Just a remarkable story. And the Billy Joe Patton part of it certainly made it even more special given the amount of consideration and respect the greatest amateur ever, Bob Jones, always gave to amateurs being in the field. And posthumously, they continue to represent him in such a great way at Augusta National by wanting to put the best amateurs in the field. Billy Joe Patton came that close to putting on a green jacket or certainly at least being in the playoff on Monday. Can you imagine? 31 years old, you're the best amateur golfer in the world. You make a hole-in-one on the par 3-6. You're leading the Masters in the final round. Oh, so close. Still revered long after his death here in the great state of North Carolina for his brilliant amateur career. But Sneed and Hogan would play that next day for the biggest title in golf, and Sneed would beat Hogan by one in 1954. What a special moment. Lawrence Hogan Mize was our guest tonight, the 1987 Masters champion. He'll be playing in his 38th Masters come 2021 of April, and you can bet he'll have a chance to make the cut. He may be only hitting it out there 250-ish, but he'll be putting it near the front of the green, and it won't be the same 56-degree wedge he used 34 years ago, but whatever club he's using, he knows every nook and cranny of those undulated greens, and he'll put it close to the hole, if not in it, and give himself a chance to play Saturday and Sunday. What an amazing man. We thank him so much for his time. Glad to be joined by Brian Katrick, the voice of the Masters. Be great to hear his calls once again come 49 days from now as we start the first round of the Masters. And before that, we'll be talking about the Augusta National Women's Amateur featuring Caitlin Papp, who was our guest tonight. We thank her so much for joining us. 
We'll be back next Monday night for another edition of the Masters Show here on Sirius XM. Special thanks tonight to Gabe Ortiz, to John Albanese, and to Christy Ujic for producing the program. I'm Taylor Zarza reminding you whether you agree or disagree, it's all for him. I hope you have a terrific week, and you join us once again next week for the Masters Show. Good night to all of you. Please be safe, and think on this President's Day of President Eisenhower and how much the Masters meant to him. They took down Ike's tree on the 17th hole, but he carries a special place in Masters history. We'll be back next Monday night on Sirius XM.